right? Well, how many of you have ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Has anyone ever heard of this? Okay, well, whether or not you've ever heard of it before, you have probably fallen victim to it. Most likely you have at some point. And so here, they did a study to, to prove this effect. They asked a whole bunch of um, university professors. They, they got them all into a room and said, I want you to rate yourself, all right? I want you to write down on this sheet of paper, where do you think you would rank among your peers, other university professors? How smart do you think you are? Right, so this was the test they gave these university professors, and, and they got the results back of this self-assessment. All right, 94% of them, 94% of them, almost everyone said they were above average. Now, I, I don't know, it's been a while since I've taken statistics, but I'm pretty sure that can't be right. Right? 94% of people said, I am above average in what I do. And in fact, that's exactly what this, this Dunning-Kruger effect is. It's this tendency we all have to overestimate our abilities, to overestimate the things we think we can do and uh, what we are good at. And it's true of university professors, but I think it's true of a lot of us, right? If I can kind of call out some of the men, especially when we're watching sports, Right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. There's an open net, they miss the shot, and you go like, ah, oh, I could have made that. No, you couldn't. <laughs> no, you couldn't. Right? If you've ever even played against someone in an actual game of hockey who, who's actually ranked up there, you realize they can skate circles around you. You wouldn't have made it to the net, let alone actually made that shot. Right? But we do this. We, we, we trick ourselves. We kind of have this false self-assessment that says, yeah, I, I'm better than that. I, I'm above average in most things. Right? To be a little bit equal, if I can make a bit of a generalization, I think women, you end up doing this more on Pinterest and Instagram. Right? You find something and you're going, I could, I could make that. Right? And a few months later, it's still sitting in the garage half finished. Right? We, we may have some of those in our own house. I think I'm also guilty of that. Right? But we tend to estimate our abilities as quite high. We tend to think to ourselves, yeah, I, I'm able to do all these things. And, and, you know, sometimes it gets us into trouble, right? You, you pull a muscle playing sports or you, you know, have all this leftover stuff, whatever it is. But, the, you know, the, the costs are fairly low. But I think we have this principle as it extends into a lot of other areas, particularly even in our spiritual life. We tend to overestimate how, how good we are, right? Most people would say, yeah, I'm a good person. I'm a pretty good person, right? I, I, I don't hurt anyone. I say nice things to people. I recycle. I pick up trash. I'm a pretty good person, right? But what if we're not always assessing ourselves well? What if we're not always looking at ourselves with, you know, a full picture of what we're actually able to do? What if this same effect that, that causes us to think that we could catch you know, a touchdown throw actually is deceiving ourselves when it comes to how good we are as well? And so this morning, that's really what we're going to be talking about. It's what the Apostle Paul is going to work us through as we go through this passage. So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you've been following along in our series, you'll know we've been walking through this letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and, and this morning he's starting off with a reminder. 
He's starting off with a reminder because he knows how easy it is for us to forget, how easy it is for us to make a false estimate of ourselves. And so he wants to remind us of what we already might know. So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to follow along. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." All right, well, that's as far as we're going to read this morning. Do you join me just in a word of prayer? Father, we we thank you for reminders. Lord, we thank you that you uh, don't just let us go, but that you continually call us back to yourself. Father, I I pray this morning as, as we look into your word, would you show us an accurate picture of who we are? Might we not be fooled by by false estimates, but Lord, that we would assess ourselves properly that we would put no confidence in our abilities, but rather full confidence in what Jesus has done, that we might know you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're looking at really one of the most famous passages in this book, right? It's, it's arguably one of the more uh, well-known passages because it's Paul kind of giving this sort of self-testimony about who he was and what he's all done. But I have to say, I I love the fact that it all begins with this word, finally, right? I love that because it's basically halfway through the book. Paul says, now finally, and then he goes on to talk for two more chapters, right? It's, it's It's like a preacher who gets up and comes and says, now finally, my last point, and then he talks for like 25 more minutes. And you're thinking, I don't think that's what that word means, right? Well, Paul is doing very much the same thing. He says, finally, and then starts on to his last topic, his last point that he's going to make in this book. And he tells them it's going to be a reminder. Verse 1 says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul knows that we can forget, and it's not a trouble for him to kind of repeat himself, and it's only going to be safe for us. And so this morning, that's really what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what is perhaps the most essential message of Christianity. It's the gospel. And I know sometimes if you've been in the church, you think, oh, I've heard this before. I don't need to hear this. Oh, trust me, we need to hear this again. We never outgrow our need to see the gospel at work in our lives. 
Because the truth is we do deceive ourselves. We, we start making all of these false assessments of, of what we're really like and the gospel is needed to remind us to bring things back into clarity. And so this morning, that's what we're gonna do. But Paul starts this whole thing off and says, rejoice, celebrate, be glad. Uh, yeah, take joy in what we're about to talk about. This is a good thing. This is good news. And so this morning, that's what I want us to do. Find your greatest joy, not in the confidence of what you can do, but in what Jesus has done that you might know Christ. So that's where we're going to look this morning, where we shouldn't put our hope, where we should, and what does it mean to actually know him. So look with me at verse 2. Let's dive into this. Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, right? Paul, Paul kind of comes out swinging here, right? He's not pulling his punches. He is calling people out for exactly what they're doing. Now, if you're kind of confused as to who exactly Paul is talking about, he's talking to this group of, of people that, that were often around the church, and they, they would try and get people to be following the Jewish law right, to, to go back and say, you need, to, you need to be following all of the Jewish commandments and, and you've got to do that. You've got to be circumcised, all you Gentile Greek believers. That's what you have to do. And, and we kind of look at that and we, we kind of go, really, that was a temptation for people? Right, like people were actually thinking, oh, maybe I should be doing that. We, we kind of look and we're like, ah, no, I'm not really going to be tempted to do that. But so, does this really have anything to to say to me, well, well, let me put it this way, okay? What people were trying to do is they were trying to set up a, a series of laws, good principles to live by, and figured that if they did enough of them, God would accept them. That if they had done enough good things, they would be right with God. And, and Paul calls this out right off the bat. Do not be deceived by this kind of logic. Because the truth is, while, while we're not really tempted to go back and eat kosher, right, to follow all of the Old Testament laws, we are tempted to do exactly that. We are tempted to try and make a, a set of rules, set of principles, and say, you know what, this is what it takes to be a good person and to be accepted by God. That is a temptation that we often fall into, right? We think, you know what, I, I picked up some trash on the side of the road. I helped an old lady across the street. I gave the guy on the side of the road a little bit of money, right? I make sure I buy ethically grown food, right? And, and all these things we think make us into good people. I go to church. I even stay behind and I help clean up the chairs. Because if I do that, I'm going to be in God's good books, Right? We figured, you know what, I might not be perfect, but surely I'm going to make the cut, right? right? Often we, we, we internally think almost like the system of, of a ladder going up. Right? right at the bottom, right at the bottom, you've got guys like Hitler. You're like, huh, I'm not Hitler. Right? Well, I guess I, I'm doing pretty good. And up here, well, I mean, sure, here's Jesus, and no, I'm not there, but, but certainly I'm somewhere in the middle, and I'm, and I'm probably above average, Right? I'm probably doing pretty good. My goodness is enough, right? There's the bad people on the bottom. The really good people are, are farther up. There's Mother Teresa. There's Billy Graham. There's whoever else, right? Really good people. And somewhere around here is this line. And, and, and once we get above it, we can get into heaven, 
Right? If we're, as long as we're above this goodness line, we're going to be safe. We can get into heaven. And so certainly I'm above that line. See, we tend to start thinking like that, and so we judge ourselves and we say, I've done enough good things. I've bumped myself up enough ladder rungs to to make it above the line to make it to heaven. I'm not Hitler, after all. I haven't done anything that bad, haven't killed anyone, haven't stolen anything that valuable. Sure, I lie a little bit, but it's only, you know, when it seems to make sense. Surely I'm good enough. I'll be okay with God. And see, what Paul is going to do here in the rest of this passage is essentially unpack and and actually destroy that kind of thinking. Look back at verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul actually starts off and says, actually, those who are in the church, they are right with God. Right? They actually are the ones who are accepted before God, but it has nothing to do with what they have done. He says, put no confidence in the flesh, meaning, has it, uh, meaning that it's not about what they can do. It's not about their good actions or deeds that will make us right before God. But Paul says, all right, if you want to play this game, let's play. All right? You want to try and measure up? Let, let's try it, okay? Verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Paul said, you want to put it to the test? Let's put it to the test. I am the more Jewish person than any of you, all right? Here are my credentials. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, right? It's when you had to do it, had to be circumcised eight days after you were born of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, right? Paul isn't some latecomer to the party. He didn't join in. No, he was born an Israelite. In fact, he even knew which tribe he had been born from, right? Not actually many Jewish people know that. And so Paul's saying, I know where I came from. I can trace my genealogy all the way back to Benjamin. And in fact, actually, Benjamin's one of the good tribes, right? They, they were the ones that followed God. They actually, it's in their territory that you find Jerusalem, all right? This is a good thing. He says, I am one of the best of the best, or as he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, right? They, they were the ones who took it the most seriously. They were the, the ones who kept every single tiny little rule. He had all of those, right? As to zeal, he says, verse 6, a persecutor of the church. He was so serious about his Jewish heritage that he was willing to go out and actually persecute others, to actually hunt down Christians. And if you know anything about Paul's life, you'll know that's exactly what he was doing. He was hunting them down, throwing them in jail, putting them to death any way he could. Finally, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Right? No one could bring anything against him. There was nothing anyone could inspect in his life and say, see, that's where you're not keeping it right. Now, I know some of you are thinking, was he really blameless? <laughs> All right, we'll come back to that in a moment. But this is his resume. Right? His resume is one of just amazingly, it's immaculate, he is able, if anyone is able, to work themselves to God, it was Paul. He had all of the right credentials to be a good person. But see, Paul actually has another way of describing himself. Paul describes himself another way in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, actually, when it comes down to it, I am the chief of sinners. I am the very first one of all the sinners. I am the worst. That is how Paul actually would describe himself. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul looks back at this and he says, oh, I thought I was building all this up. I thought I had all these amazing credentials that I could stack one on another. Actually, all of them were useless. Instead of gaining me something, they actually lost me something. They were not of any value. Right? You can think of you know, financial terms, accounting terms. He says, you know, I thought I was building up assets. Actually, they were all liabilities. It didn't actually work out in my favor. These were losses. Worse than that, in fact, verse 8, he says halfway through, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Not just loss, but garbage, filth. They, they, they were disgusting at this point. Right? You might know that this, this word actually gets translated a little bit nicely in our Bibles. Right? Rubbish is kind of a, it's a very proper English kind of word, rubbish. Right? It doesn't quite com, uh, convey the real meaning of this word. This was something of disgust. This was a pile of garbage um, that's been left out for too long. Actually, it's most commonly used of human waste and feces. Right? It, it's a kind of thing where you look at it and just go, oh, like that's, just, that's just gross. Right? If I can tell you a little bit of a story, just to give you a sense of what that word entails. Many of you know I spent a while cleaning portable toilets. <laughs> All right? It was not a great job, but I did it. And, and while that's, that's a fairly gross job just in and of itself, there was parts that were worse than others. To, to clean out a portable toilet, you have a, a, a vacuum hose. It's not a nice thing, but you vacuum out all the contents of the portable toilet. And the worst part of that is every once in a while, there would be a piece of toilet paper that would get caught, and it would actually fling up as it gets sucked into the tube. And as it does that, it sprays all the contents everywhere. That feeling of disgust, that's what Paul's talking about. <laughs> That, 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 oh, that, that little bit of vomit that kind of just rose in your throat, that is what Paul's talking about. When he now looks back at his record, as he looks at all of these things he had built up for himself, he now looks at it and goes, oh, like that's gross, that's disgusting. Why did I try and trust in all of that? That is gross. And you might say, well, what changed? What changed Paul's mind from thinking that this was something great to now just looking at that and going, I don't want to be anywhere near that, right? Well, I think Paul gives us a number of answers, but the first one comes from the fact that he was thinking on the wrong spectrum, right? He was thinking about how he could build his way back up to God, how if he could get enough good points, he would be made right with God. But Romans 3 makes this a little bit clearer. Romans 3 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, Paul says, actually, the reality is, 
The reality is our efforts, our works, our, our ability to do good deeds will never actually get us to God because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's perfect standard. In fact, God wasn't just looking for mostly good people. He was looking for perfection. And so everything that we have done selfishly to build ourselves up is no longer something good, but rather some stinking, rotten pile of garbage. I, Paul says, I want nothing more to do with that. It means everyone has actually fallen short. From Mother Teresa to Hitler, all of us are sinners. It's less a question about how many good points have you gotten, can you make it past this line? It's actually more of a true or false question. Have you ever sinned? Have you ever lied? Have you ever hated someone? Have you ever lusted after someone? The Bible calls all of these things sin. From the least to the greatest, all of us have sinned and our efforts are never going to make up that lack. So Paul says all of that was just wasted, selfish desire. Paul's self-assessment was way off. Thought he was doing good, turns out it was futile. So let me just ask you to put yourself into the passage. How would you rate your resume? What, what does your resume look like? What are your qualifications? What are the things that you could depend on? To be truthful, I, I've got a pretty good one if I want. I was born in a Christian family pretty good Christian family, a pastor's family, in fact. I went to Bible college, I went to seminary, I have a master's degree in divinity, as weird as that sounds, right? I can read Greek and Hebrew, I've gone on mission trips all over the world and here at home, and I'm even serving as a pastor. Look how good I am. Surely that's enough to make me right with God. And the answer is not at all. All of that is useless and wasted. It's worth nothing. It's less than nothing. It is a pile of waste and filth. As soon as we start falling into this line of thinking that says, maybe I can earn my way back up to God. Maybe these things are good at me. Look how good I am. Actually, we need to be reminded. We need the reminder. None of that is going to make us right with God. And so the question we need to ask then is, well, what can we put our confidence in? What exactly can we say? What, what can we hold on to, to to get into heaven to make me right with God? What can I possibly trust? The answer comes in verse 8. Look back at it. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Where do we place our full confidence? It's found in Jesus himself. Gaining Christ is far more valuable than anything else. Paul looks at his works now, and not only are they a loss, Paul says, in contrast to what I have gained, this is less than nothing. In contrast to what Jesus has done, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All right, notice how he says that. He counts them as rubbish so he can gain Christ. See, sometimes here's what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to come to Christ and say, you know what, here, look, look how good I am, God, now, now you can accept me, right? I'll, I'll let Jesus kind of top me off, I'll get the rest of the way up. Here's all the good things I did, isn't that wonderful? Now, now we'll go up the rest with Jesus. 
Actually, Paul says, no, that's not how it works. You let go of all of it. You let go of everything you were clinging on to, all of your own good works, all of your own abilities and, and time. You get rid of all of it. You say, I have nothing except Jesus. In fact, that's what it means. You come to Jesus saying, I have absolutely nothing in my life, and nothing I could or would do to earn favor with you. See, that's actually the posture of a Christian. That's our only hope to be made right with God. Verse 9 continues, be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul sets up this contrast now. He says, here is all the, the, the righteousness, all my good deeds, my, my record of good, and I'm going to set it up here. And in contrast is actually the, the righteousness, the, the record of God's perfect righteousness. Here is his obedience. And in fact, he says, that is what I need. My righteousness has nothing to gain me. It is all because of the righteousness of God that has been given to me. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, the question is, how can we ever get this? How can we ever go from this tattered record to a perfect record that we can have before God, that we can be forgiven of our sins? It comes in Jesus Christ himself. God who came to earth because he actually loved us so much that he would go to the cross, that he would take the punishment for our sins so that we would no longer have that wrecked sinful record, but we would have his perfect record of righteousness. That is what Jesus has done for us. That is the good news. That is what we can depend on and nothing else. Nothing else will gain us any credit, any merit before God. It is all because of what Jesus has done. He took the punishment in our place. Why are we even trying to do what Jesus has accomplished? See, that's the contrast Paul is making. Our, our pitiful righteousness we try and earn next to this immaculate, perfect righteousness of God held out to anyone who would put their trust in him. Romans chapter 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, that's the invitation of Jesus, to be made right with God, not because we've done enough, but because he has done it all so that anyone who would repent of their sins, place their trust in Jesus, you will be saved. That's the message of the cross. That is the message of Christianity. And that's what Paul is saying, it is worth giving up everything for. It is worth giving up all of your, your resume, all of your good deeds, your accomplishments, your achievements, get rid of all of it. So that, Paul says, we might know him. 
Verse 10, he continues. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to actually attain this righteousness. It is worth me giving up absolutely everything that I've got. Right? If you remember the parable Jesus tells about this man who finds this treasure in a field, and he goes out and he sells everything he has so that he can buy that field and gain that treasure. See, that's what Paul is saying here. I'm willing to do whatever it takes that I may be with Christ because it's worth me giving up everything for to receive his righteousness, to be raised to eternal life with God. Now, I I don't want you to get the impression that he's somehow saying, like, I I don't know if I'm going to get it. Like, like, I hope that I'll be able to do. No, actually, Paul's talking about confidence, but what he's saying is, actually, it calls us to do something now. That, That the Christian life now calls us to this obedience, to know him well. But I'm going to tell you that's what we're going to talk about next week. All right, that's where Paul goes in the rest of the chapter. So this morning, I I just want to simply ask the question, do you know Jesus like this? Do, Do you know Jesus like this? If someone were to come to you and ask you, how do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you're a good enough person? Where would your answer come from? Would it come from the facts of what you have done? I've gone to church. I've been baptized. I took communion. I I said the right words. There's lots of ways that we can get ourselves confused. There's lots of ways that we can get ourselves all twisted out of sorts and thinking that it's about the actions, the steps that we took. That now makes us right with God. Actually, that's not the case at all, is it? It's not the case at all. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing. The answer is that even if you did happen to gain the entire world, you were perfect in all of these, or you were able to gain all of these things for yourself, it wouldn't actually gain you anything before God. And maybe this morning that's just where we need to start. Do you know Jesus like this? Have you come to confess your sins, giving up on trying to earn your way into heaven and simply trust that Jesus has done it all? See, one of the beautiful things about the fact that that we can't actually earn our way into heaven means that none of our actions exclude us either. Sometimes we think we have to be good enough to come to Jesus. That's not the case. Actually, if none of our actions endear us into God's uh, (laughs) relationship, neither do our actions exclude us. And so, Let me say this, stop trying to bring your resume. Throw it away, burn it. What you need is Jesus himself. And and Paul says we need to be reminded about this. We can forget so easily 
We can get caught up in all the things that we do, the serving opportunities. Yeah, I went to this one. I serve here. I, I have, you know, given enough money to the church. I've done this and that and this. And that's how I know I, I'm really saved. Truth is, we get ourselves mixed up. And that's not where our foundation is to be. Rather, it is found in what Jesus has done. And I want you to see that this morning. And here's why. You remember where Paul started this whole thing? Very first thing he said. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. See, that is why we can rejoice. Paul explains all of this so that we have a reason to rejoice that is always there, that is over everything. You had a bad day at work? You can rejoice because your salvation is not dependent on how good you did that day. You have something to rejoice in that will not be taken away, that cannot be moved, that is not hindered. In fact, we can rejoice no matter what. I don't know if you're in the midst of deep depression, sitting there with tears streaming down your eyes, and you have no idea why. Hear me. The message of the gospel is that God actually loved you and sent Jesus so that if you believe in him, you will be saved. That is true no matter how you feel. In fact, no matter what's gone on, the gospel stays true. There is a reason we have to rejoice and to be glad in what God has done. There is always so much to be thankful for. What we did not earn, God has graciously given. How much anxiety does that take away from us trying to earn our way to God, to scrape and crawl and say, oh, I hope I did enough. No, Jesus has done enough. He has done it all. We get to celebrate and rejoice and be glad for what Jesus has done. See, that is what we are called to do this morning. That is the reminder. Would you rejoice in what Jesus has done? So this morning, let me invite the worship team to come to the front. Let me simply ask you this. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus like him, like this? Do you trust in him and in him alone for your salvation? If not, what's holding you back? This morning is an invitation to celebrate, to rejoice, knowing Jesus has paid it all, and in him we are forgiven of our sins, that eternal life is guaranteed. I want to encourage you this morning, don't let the opportunity pass by. Come talk to me, come talk to someone else here. Let us celebrate together knowing about what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful. So thankful for what you have done. So thankful for the salvation that you have so freely given. That while we were sinners, you died for us. Jesus, you came to, to, to save us while we didn't deserve it, so to do something we could not earn. Father, I pray now, fill us with joy. Allow us to be able to celebrate truly, genuinely for what you have done. Father, might it not be a, a, a show, might it not be what we try and do to earn our way back to you, but just genuinely out of joy and gratitude for the amazing salvation given in Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.